Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, have great, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This, this is the word of, the, of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Jace. I felt so blessed at 4 a.m. this morning, uh, as one does, right? I always wake up at 4 o'clock on Sundays if I'm preaching or not. I just, like, I'm not even sleeping Saturday nights. I'm just waiting for Sunday. And I kid you not, at 3.59 this morning, right before my alarm went off, I had this dream, which was 100% real and 100% a blessing to me. In the dream, I was talking with the actor Tracy Morgan, Tracy Morgan played Tracy Jordan on 30 Rock. He was a cast member on Saturday Night Live. He's a really, really funny dude. And I was talking to Tracy. I don't know why I had this kind of access to him, but I said, Tracy, you're depressed because you're not working, but you're working because you're, not, you're depressed. And he goes, will someone make me a pizza? And that was the whole dream. <laughs> and I woke up, like, it sounds like a great Tracy Morgan scene. Uh, and I just woke up with like a really cheerful heart. And so I'm great to be together, great to be with all of you this morning. So there's a story of this rabbi. And uh, the rabbi is making his way toward his synagogue. It's a high and holy day there in the synagogue. Everyone is on their best behavior. They're well-dressed. Everyone wants to make sure we get things just right, which made it all the more problematic when this one boy, who was known for being a little bit of a troublemaker, went to the whiteboard that was front and center in the community where everybody could see it, and he took a dry erase marker, and the kid had been learning his Hebrew letters, and he spelled out phonetically the, an English word for feces. And the word, you know, is four letters long, and it's not really church or synagogue appropriate, but this kid wrote out in Hebrew letters this inappropriate English word for feces, and everyone was up in arms freaking out. What is the rabbi going to do when he gets here? And so the rabbi shows up, and he sees that this kid has written this offensive, like synagogue inappropriate word on the whiteboard, but he notices that he actually misspelled the word. And so he'd used a, a, a long vowel instead of a short vowel. And so the rabbi walks up. He sees, you know, the, the teachers have pulled the kid up. So he's, he's, they're expecting him to get his scolding. And the rabbi does, in fact, scold him. How dare you misspell this word? You should know your Hebrew letters better. He says, in fact, you're going to write this word a hundred times correctly before you can join in on any of the festivities today. 
And so the kid writes the word that you're thinking of with four letters that might start with an S. It is Hebrew letters there on the board. And his lighthearted and playful response totally disarmed the situation. And the people who are afraid that this day is, you know, going to be totally messed up turns out to be a great day because this rabbi has an unexpected response. One of my favorite rabbis and mad scientists is a guy named Edwin Friedman who wrote a number of books that I quote, if we ever go to lunch, I will probably quote that book. But in his book on congregational life, uh, Edwin Friedman says, the capacity of pastors and rabbis to be paradoxical, it's a little bit confusing in their behavior, to be challenging rather than merely fixing things, sometimes crazy and even devilish, often can do more to loosen knots in a stuck relationship system than the most well-meaning, serious efforts. The act of being playful frees others by forcing them out of their serious games. Now, if ever in the, in the biblical world there was a stuck relationship system, it was the way that Jews and Gentiles related to one another. The Jews prided themselves as being God's chosen people, and they were. They were God's beloved people, and they were, but they wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles, which just means the non-Jewish people that they considered pigs and dogs. If you remember the story in John's Gospel where he talks about Jesus interacting with the Samaritans, kind of half-Jews, they're like, oh, man, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Well, all the more Jews don't associate with Gentiles. And if you didn't notice it, here in the text, Jesus and his disciples have gone into the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's in southern Lebanon. I've been to Sida. In fact, I was at a, a restaurant in Sida with this uh, Muslim sheikh, Sheikh Mohammed, and we're in the middle of a conversation. I've been there with World Vision, and all of a sudden he starts singing, let it go, let it go. And I didn't expect to be with a Muslim cleric and Islam, a Muslim cleric singing Disney songs in Sida, but I was. So Jesus goes out into, out of the, the territory of Israel into Gentile territory. It's a fact that's not altogether important to us in the reading of Scripture, but it would have been really important. It would have really stood out to Jesus' disciples who know that Jews aren't meant to associate with Gentiles. It would have certainly stood out uh, to those people who've been following Jesus' itinerant ministry, the, the Pharisee types, the teachers of the law, and they're wondering, what is Jesus going to do in this land of the pigs and the dogs? And read through that lens, one might assume that thinking about the text and the things that Jesus said, that, that Jesus has the same anti-Gentile prejudice as the other teachers of the law. And I wonder, for those of you who've who heard the passage today or maybe have perhaps read it before, I wonder how many of you have had the thought, is Jesus being a total jerk? Because it seems like that a little bit. It seems like Jesus might be prejudiced, that Jesus might be racist. At the very least, it seems like Jesus is being rude. But I would contend that Jesus here, like the rabbi in the story earlier, is not being mean, but he's being sneaky. He is being paradoxical. He is being a bit devious. Jesus is up to something. And what he's up to is slowly loosening this knot of hatred and prejudice. We could even say of racism of the Jews toward the Gentiles. And along the way, Jesus is going to be giving us a little 
peak of the plan that God the Father has had all along. That through Israel's Messiah, God was going to make one new family of all the families of the earth, Jews and Gentiles together. This is what Paul called the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. Now, something that's striking about this Gentile woman, this outsider, is that she's using insider baseball language. She calls Jesus the son of David. Again, this is insider language. It's Jewish language to describe God's anointed one, Israel's Messiah. In the preceding passage at the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 15, uh, people, Jewish leaders from Jerusalem have made their way up to the region of Galilee where Jesus is preaching and healing and feeding the 5,000. And they've been, they've been on his every word, picking apart everything that he says. And here we find uh, this woman who we would expect to be the least receptive, the most open, the most offensive to Jesus, who is readily calling in the son of David. And we find those people who we think would be most ready to welcome Israel's Messiah, the least receptive. And this illustrates a counterintuitive reality that I began to, to learn in church ministry uh, some years ago. And I'm going to call it the, the dynamic of the core and the fringe. Think about the core and the fringe. The core are those people who are like lifers in the community of faith. The core are the people who have, have been there, you know, from eternity past. They have been a part of every iteration of every program, every ministry. They've sat on every committee. They know everybody's name. They know the gossip on everybody. Those are the people at the core. And then you also have the people who are at the fringe, the people who are newer, who don't know all the stories, who don't know, get all of the references, that don't know all of the inside jokes, who don't have generations of history with the community of faith, who are newer. And, and one thing that's really surprising to me is that you would expect the core to be some of the most like generous, free, happy people in the whole community. What's interesting is that without constant vigilance and careful attention, the core can actually be some of the crankiest Christians you've ever met. The core can be some of the most critical and judgmental, the most difficult to motivate, the most likely to send a snarky email or a rude email to somebody. And why this is the case is because time in erodes awareness of. So in some ways, it erodes your own self-awareness, but the longer you're in a community, the longer you lose that sense of wonder and appreciation for, hey, this is pretty cool. This is neat. God's doing really cool things. Time and erodes awareness of. Jesus talked about, he said, no prophet is welcome in their hometown. Jesus says when he goes to Nazareth, everyone's like, oh, I remember when you used to be a diaper, so look, you're doing a little ministry thing. People time in, he rode awareness of. They didn't appreciate what was standing right before them in Jesus, the Son of God. Time in, he rode awareness of. The core can be the crankiest, whereas the fringe can be among the most reliable sources of joy and energy and faith, and, and where you can find like one of the best little pools of co-laborers in the ministry of the kingdom. I read an article really early in ministry that talked about this dynamic, which says some church leaders are spending all of their energy trying to change and motivate the core, and the core is not interested. 
They're trying to get, you know, the people have been around forever to have a heart for the lost or evangelism or things like that. And you're like, yeah, that's like a young person's game. Like, we're going to let somebody else do it. So that if, you, if you're feeling burnt out trying to change the core, then change your direction of energy to the fringe. And it's at the fringe that you're going to find those people who are more ready to embrace something that's new. Jesus has come to the core. John chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And here at the fringe in the region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus has found one of his people, one of those people who has eyes open for the kingdom and has their, their attention set on him. But Jesus really does not make it easy for the woman at all. After calling him the son of David and asking him for help, does Jesus turn and say, oh, I so appreciate you. That is so great that you have that perspective about me. It says that Jesus didn't answer her a word. How rude is that? His disciples, this woman continues crying out to him, came to him and urged him saying, look, if you're not going to do something for her, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now it feels like, perhaps in the presence of the disciples, these Jewish men, that it feels like Jesus is affirming uh, his, his here, he's here first for the core. For the disciples, for any of the teachers of the law types, they may think that Jesus is with them in this anti-Gentile stance, this anti-Gentile bias. And Jesus does actually confirm Yes, the people of Israel are God's chosen people, and salvation is from the Jews, the New Testament says. Jesus is affirming their status. As Jesus, even though as he affirms that this woman is not put off and she perseveres. The next verse, verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And this is where it begins to feel like, oh, come on, Jesus Verse 26, he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The children here are the children of Israel. It's like we are God's people, God's children, God's heirs. The bread are all of the blessings and the benefits of being a part of that elect group. Jesus is saying it would not be right for us to share the blessings of, of Israel with you Gentile people. He's overtly calling her a dog here. And the woman is not even put off, off by this insult. And she responds, yes, it is, Lord. Even the, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Three times now she's persevered in, in spite of the obstacles that Jesus gives her, in, in spite of the snub, in, in spite of the insult, she perseveres. And Jesus responds, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. In the late 4th century, there was a church bishop named Theodore who, commenting on this passage, said, By this answer, this response to the woman, Jesus showed what he had premeditated from the outset. For it was for this reason that he postponed giving the woman a reply, that she might cry aloud with this word of faith. Thereby he would show her to be worthy a thousand crowns. For it was not because he did not want to give her the gift that he delayed, but because he sought and took care beforehand to reveal her faith. 
With his accolades, he honors her as presenting a type of the church that is from the Gentiles. This woman represents for us a whole category of people that had been excluded from the elect, excluded from the people of God. And here, her persevering faith, her courage in spite of difficulty and opposition, demonstrate that there's a kind of faith and there's a ripeness among an unexpected group of people, and Jesus is ready to pluck this fruit for the kingdom. Here we have the the sneakiness of Jesus. It would have been one response for Jesus the first time she cries out to just say, hey, isn't this lady awesome? Let's give her a round of applause. But by causing her to to demonstrate her faith and persevere, it becomes almost to the point, point of embarrassment that Jesus is not giving in because she perseveres and she perseveres and she perseveres. It's his paradoxical behavior. It's his playfulness. It's his patience in conversation with her where it's just so plain, obvious, the kind of faith that she possesses that even the people of Israel and the teachers of the law fail to possess. He shows that these people that have been regarded as dogs are really behaving as children, and the people who should be children and should know better are behaving like dogs. As Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, which would have called to mind this whole, this whole vision of journey of despair and hope, and Jesus would have had in his mind as he's on the cross, look at these dogs encircling me. The dogs behave like children, and the children behave like dogs. Now, if you zoom back and listen to this at a meta level, Matthew's gospel, among all four of them, is uniquely focused on the Jews, a Jewish listening audience. And this passage would have felt a little bit like overkill to that listening audience because it feels like a rhyme or an echo of a story that's already happened in Matthew's gospel where there was a Roman centurion. Romans are the most hated of all the Gentiles. They're the occupiers in God's land, and it's a centurion. It's a military leader. And this Roman demonstrates great faith on behalf of his servants, and Jesus grants his request. He says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. With the inclusion of this story, Matthew is making a point to the people of Israel that like, God is going to find people of faith even from among the Gentiles. Yes, the people of Israel are God's chosen people. They are the core. They are the insiders. But they must not forget that their chosenness, that their belovedness, that their election is ultimately not for themselves, but it is ultimately for the sake of others. In the words of one songwriter, if it's us and them, it's us for them. In Isaiah 49, God is speaking in conversation with the prophet Isaiah about his own ministry, and it has a greater word of bearing to all of the people of Israel, that God's God's heart is not just to win one nation. This is what God says, Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that's the people of Israel, back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. Isaiah says, God says to me, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
It's so easy for the core to forget that God's heart from the beginning, even in the promises given to Abraham, were always to be a blessing to the fringe. Everybody wants to be at the core. The the core is just to be an an insider. The core comes with um, familiarity and and, uh, comfort and knownness. Now, some people would say, ah, I like being kind of on the fringe and on the outside, but even those people want to be at the core of the fringe. Every one of us want to be known, to know others, to have that sense of security. And whether it's at, you know, the elementary school playground or on the university campus, your campus ministry, in your work, in your family, in a church, everybody wants to be into the core. Everyone wants to break into it. And at one point or another, all of us know what it feels like to be outside of it. We know what it's like to be the new person that doesn't know the lingo, that doesn't know the history, that doesn't feel like there are people like me or people who like me. But the problem is, once we finally break into the core, it's like we have this kind of amnesia where we forget what it was like to be at the fringe, to not be known, to walk into a room and not experience the the comfort of seeing faces that you know and people with whom you have inside jokes and folks that you're in a group with or you regularly have meals with or you've traveled with. We forget what it's like to lack that security and that safety. We're so relieved with our own core status that we forget what it's like to be on the outside. And what's really fascinating is that you can't adequately describe whether a community is is friendly. Because even in a community like this, there are people who would say, oh my gosh, this church is truly a community shaped by the gospel. Like you walk in and it's like just a reunion of best friends. You walk in and, and everyone, it's like the bar and cheers. Everyone knows everybody's name. It's just a really tight knit group of people. And some people may feel that way about the church. Well, simultaneously, there's also a group of people who would say, that church is so clicky. That church is like, it's so hard to get to know anybody. Hardly anyone says hi to me. I've walked in for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I feel like I'm literally like the invisible man or the invisible woman here. Well, what's going on? One person is experiencing life at the core, and they are reaping the benefits of the core, and another person is at the fringe, and they're struggling to figure out where they belong and uncertain if anybody notices them. And this reality is a massive problem for the human species right now. Justin Whitmell early in his book, Made for People, that came out this week, he said, the current of modern life is to become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. And mostly you won't even notice that this is happening. I've said it before, it always bears repeating. You have no idea how lonely, how fragile, how anxious, how scared are the people around you right now. You have no idea the crisis that some people are quietly living through and living through alone. More and more of us feel like people who used to have friends. It feels like our social muscles, our friendship muscles, maybe uh, exacerbated by COVID, have just atrophied. We no longer know or have the courage to reach out to others in a friendly way. We assume everybody already knows each other. James Wagner, who's a part of our church and works for the city of Tulsa, said they did a study. He mentioned this a few weeks ago. 
He did a study where they asked the citizens of our city that if you had some kind of crisis happen in the middle of the night and you needed to call somebody to watch your kid, would you have somebody that you could call? And six out of ten people in our city said they do not have a single person that they could call. Six out of ten people. Lots of people have written about the loneliness epidemic that's happening in our world right now. What's funny is we look at others and think they're core, but more and more of us feel like we are fringe. We don't know where we belong. We don't know who values us. We don't have the security afforded by rich spiritual friendships. Now, for those of us who are at the core, other people may need to confirm that for you. You may be blind to it yourself. But if we spend all of our time and energy with others who are at the core of the church, others who are at the core of the faith, even at the core of your friend group, what will happen in time is as you turn inward, you are going to get bored. You may even get cranky. It's because an an inward-facing life collapses in on itself. They were always meant to actually be in tension between the core and the fringe. It's great to have the security of a core group of people, to be part of a strong worshiping community. But if we give up on the fringe, we will get bored. What should we do instead? We should do the kind of things that lead to a rich life of friendship and belonging at the core while also maintaining a fringe-facing posture. If you spend all your time at the core, you are going to get bored. But if you keep your face to the fringe, it's going to keep you feisty. And it is going to keep things spicy in your world. Do we not want things to be feisty and spicy? (laughs) I was thinking about what is an image that demonstrates this kind of life or the shape of a life like this. And a beautiful image came to me from the agricultural life of the people of Israel. In Leviticus uh, chapter 23, God says to the people of Israel, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. What does that mean? Well, picture a, a rectangular plot of land where you are growing your crop of choice. It's like draw a line just on the inside of your edges. And the things that are at the very edges and at the very corners don't touch. Now, even the gleanings, what are the gleanings? The gleanings refer to as you're harvesting your crop and you drop some. Don't pick it back up. Why? God has a specific purpose. He says, leave these gleanings and leave the edges, the corners of your field. For who? For the poor. And for the foreigner residing among you. And almost as if he's anticipating their objection, he says, Oh yeah, I am the Lord your God. Don't argue with me about this. You could say that God is communicating to them, The core of your fields is for you. But even that's not totally accurate because the gleanings there, the things that drop are for others. And even the people of Israel would have been offering their tithe or their first fruits from the core. But you could say without nuance here that the core is for you. So eat and be merry, but the corners, the fringe, the gleanings, the extras are for others and particularly for outsiders. How can you keep from getting bored at the core? It's by creating a premeditated, structured 
plan to stay in touch with the fringe. It's by deciding in advance, I'm going to allocate a portion of my time. I'm going to allocate a percentage of my relational capacity. I'm going to allocate a part of my budget for people who are not presently my family or my best friends, and especially those people who are on the fringe, those people who are in positions of vulnerability, which is the poor, the widow, the foreigner among you. It's people who are at the fringe. I think this even ought to pertain to how we engage with the life of the church in our primary time together, which is on Sunday mornings. When the church gets together, I hope that over time you recognize more people and you have more people that you could call friends. And I want you to have the security and the familiarity of knowing lots of people. At the same time, we need to have a fringe-facing posture, a posture of hospitality, which is more than a greeting ministry. It's being hospitable people where we're learning to actually notice those fragile and, and anxious and worried and wonderful people who are around us, who we all walk in, many of us walk in smiling, we walk in apparently happy, but by having this fringe-facing posture, we look at this person through the lens of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we appreciate this person has just as much complexity, just as many problems, and just as many gifts to bring to the table as I do. We ought to see our friends. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. But we must notice those at the fringe, those who are not yet our friends. I am convinced that everybody, everyone just wants to be noticed. Even if you are a more introverted person like me, and you're a little bit uncomfortable with the social engagement that comes with a mass of people coming together in one room, everybody wants their name to be known. Everybody wants to be valued. Everyone wants to be invited into a greater relationship. So we ought to greet our friends, but we ought to strive to structure in our imagination a, a, a percentage of our life that's for outsiders. And so I would urge you on a Sunday morning to please, if you know anybody, introduce them to somebody that you don't know. Uh, to, to please just like do the little social work of making introductions and learning names. I, I feel grieved in my heart every time I see someone sitting alone in the worship service. And I would urge you, friends, to please notice people who are alone and invite them to be with you. And then you're not alone either. If you're an alone person, find another and say, do you want to sit with me? It may feel appropriate to linger in conversation after worship. You may take the next step and set up a coffee or set up a meal with another person. Treat other people socially the way that you would want to be treated if you were new, or treat other people the way you would want them to treat your son or your daughter if they walked into a church for the first time. If you find that you are bored in your life with God, it may well be that you're spinning your tires at the core and the Lord Jesus wants to invite you to face the fringe, to join him in, in this kingdom ministry of leaving the 99 to go after the one. And the great secret for those who live this kind of life, and they are, the folks like this are in our church, is that there's a great gift not only for the person at the fringe, but for the person at the core who goes there. And a great story to illustrate, this comes from the book of Ruth, which is a story of gleaning, 
where Boaz, this man, is following the commandments that God has given in Leviticus 23, and he doesn't pick up the gleanings, and he leaves the edges and the corners of his fields for the foreigner, for the widow, for the person in a position of vulnerability to reap the benefits. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, find themselves widows, and they hear that there's a godly man who is following the scriptures and leaving the gleanings to the poor. And these women take up the gleanings, and Boaz meets Ruth. They marry. Boaz and Ruth become the father of Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. There's a gift and a blessing for a family tree that did not yet exist because there were those who faced the fringe and even Jesus was brought into this story. And Jesus wants you to bring him into his story. And, and this is this great gift that we can offer the world of hospitality, of living at the core, but facing the fringe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that in our own desire to be known, you don't negate us by telling us to notice others. As Isaiah prayed, you're the one who knit me together in my mother's wombs. David prayed, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Like, Lord, you know us and you notice us. And so you don't leapfrog over our own needs, telling us to just take it for the sake of others. You, you provide for our needs. You want to put the lonely in families. You want to, to cause us to be a community of rich spiritual friendships. And you invite us from that place of security to offer hospitality in the name of Jesus and from the core to offer friendship and belonging to those at the fringe. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the grace and the presence of mind to see others, the empathy to wonder what, it's, what is it like to be that person? And not out of like a charity case, but because of how we would want to be treated to invite others into our family tables, to invite other people into our world. Lord, forgive us for ways in which we as your people have been inhospitable not only to, to each other, but we've just blown it in those who are at the fringe of the church. We've blown it to those who are moving toward you, but they can't find anyone in the church who's moving toward them. Forgive us, Lord, and teach us to do better. May we be a people with rich friendships, nourishing friendships, laying down our life for each other friendships, and may we always stay with our eyes on the fringe. Lord Jesus, we, we love you. Thank you that you invite us to come to your table. As we come, I pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord Jesus, thank you that you show us your hospitality and invite us to join you at your table. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you 
and give you peace.